Let's pray before we look at God's holy word. Lord, we thank you for your faithfulness that does not grow old, that, Lord, it does not grow weary, it does not lose heart. For, Lord, you are the unchanging God, the God who was good, the God who was kind. And we pray, Lord, that we would praise you for who you are. Help us, Lord, to have the right view of you, a big view of God, a holy view of God. Help us have the appropriate response to your word, as it tells us in Isaiah 66, that, Lord, behold, you love those who tremble, who fear at your word. Help us to understand our proper place with the word, that we're to be under the word, subject to the word rather than over it. Help us, O Lord. Guide us by your spirit. Help us to have clarity and understanding. May we not wander away from your commandments. Lord, I pray this morning we would be in tune to truth. Lord, it's not my words, but it's yours. And it's your words that have power. It's your words that actually change hearts. It's your words that bring salvation. And we give you the glory and praise for that in your son's name. Amen. Uh, This morning, uh, we will be having another Christmas message. Uh, now, some of you may be thinking to yourselves, you know, um, hey, Patrick, as you said, you know, Christmas was two days ago, so you've kind of missed your window of opportunity. Uh, that time has passed, and that's definitely an understandable thought, uh, but I still find it's appropriate, and it's right for us to have one last Christmas message, especially considering, you know, that we have our decorations still up, they're still here, the lights are on, and considering also that Christmas was only two days ago, that seems pretty close enough. But the main reason why we can do one last Christmas message is because what Christmas is truly about. It's about the incarnation. The incarnation of the Son of God, that God became a man, a man in the person of Jesus Christ. That Christmas theme, the glorious incarnation of our Savior, is worth talking about. And the reality is, it's not just worth talking about during the holidays, but all year long, every day. Because the incarnation is glorious, It's marvelous and something so worth celebrating. Sadly, many people don't know about the true meaning of Christmas. Now, many people celebrate Christmas, of course, that we know, but many people are ignorant of what it's truly about. And so then, therefore, they miss the true celebration. For example, a TV reporter was walking the main streets of a major city, asking the shoppers as they came by, what is the meaning of Christmas? And he got several responses, not one that was really consistent or the same. One of the responses was, as he found a lady coming by, and he said, ma'am, I just want to ask you, what is the true meaning of Christmas? And she began to kind of puzzle and began to kind of, you know, 
smile and then even somewhat kind of laugh, chuckle. She said, well, I don't, I don't really know. I, but if I had to make a guess, that's the day that Jesus died, right? And as the reporter continued, he got several other responses, different or maybe with, even within the same vein. Others would say that the meaning of Christmas is in fact about the birth of Jesus. But they couldn't explain who Jesus is, his identity, or why he came, his mission, his goal, his purpose. Many are sadly misinformed or they're ignorant about the coming of Christ. Though if you were to ask a decent amount of people, they wouldn't claim ignorance. Rather, they would claim they know what it's really about. But if you press them on the details, they would be incorrect in their response. It's like the story of the little girl who incorrectly corrected her brother as they were singing their famous favorite Christmas carol, Silent Night, in church the Sunday before Christmas. The boy concluded Silent Night with the words, sleep in heavenly beings. And his sister responded, no, 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 brother. That, that's not how it ends. You are wrong. It's not beans. It's rather peas. We're to sleep in heavenly peas, not beans. I thought that was funny. People miss the main theme of Christmas, the celebration, because of a misunderstanding, because of ignorance, like I said. Now, there's another group Another group that doesn't celebrate the true meaning, and that's because of hostility, a rejection of this truth, a denial of it. This is a message that they despise. They mock it. It's an offense to them. It's something that's foolish to them. It's beneath them. That's what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 1.18, that the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. The Greek word for foolish is moronic. It's stupid, it's idiotic to those who don't believe. This is the person or the individual who both inwardly and outwardly scoffs at the coming of Christ, his first coming as well as his second coming. So of course they don't celebrate the incarnation it's futile to them. It's pointless. Then there's another group. This is the indifferent. It's those who have heard the message. They've heard the truth, the gospel, and they don't claim to deny it with their words. They affirm it, but it's still nothing to them. It's meaningless. It's inconsequential. Though they've heard the truth, could he pretty well even articulate the truth, the meaning behind Christmas, the incarnation, verbally affirming it with their lips, but the way they live, they live as if it doesn't matter, as if it doesn't exist. These are the practical atheists who wouldn't deny God with their mouths if you were to ask them, but they deny him with their mind, hearts, by how they live. Though they know, affirm with their lips, they are indifferent to this truth. They are indifferent to the incarnation. They are indifferent to salvation. 
They are indifferent to God. As it says in Psalm 10.4, God is in none of their thoughts. Remember, I was talking with someone recently about this, and I asked them, I said, are you an atheist? And they said, well, no, by no means. Why? I'm just like, well, why do you ask? I said, I'm just curious. You never attend church. Just, I thought maybe you'd be an atheist. They said, no, I actually totally believe Jesus is God. Completely. I'd even say Jesus is the only way to be saved. It's an exclusive way to be saved. But yet this individual lives as if that is irrelevant. It doesn't matter how you respond or what you do. The next group is the familiar person. This really falls into the category of the true believer. This is the individual who has turned to Christ who has embraced him as Lord and Savior of their lives. They know the true meaning of Christmas. They know the purpose behind the incarnation. They can break it down well. They know the verses that talk about the coming of Christ. They know the prophecies of the Old Testament that are fulfilled with Christ's coming. Micah 5.2, Genesis 3, Psalm 22, Isaiah 7, Isaiah 9. They could talk about all these prophecies. Highlight them. Know what they are. They're consistent in their reading of the word that reveals truth. They're faithful to come to church every Sunday. They're faithful even to serve. Maybe children's ministry. Maybe youth ministry. Maybe it's in the nursery. Maybe it's an usher. Maybe it's a deacon. Maybe it's worship ministry. They're faithful But something is missing. Something is absent. Because though they celebrate the greatness of the coming of Christ with their lips, and they affirm it with their minds, they know this is truth. They know this is objective truth. And there is no other truth. They've embraced it. But what's missing, it's not taking root in their hearts like it used to. There's a lack of inward joy and excitement for the incarnation. There's a lack of awe, wonder, and reverence for it. Yes, they know it's true. They affirm it. Come to the services and celebrate it. But inwardly, they're cold. That passion is not the same as it used to be. For now their heart is drawn toward other things. And a lot of times those other things that we're drawn to aren't bad things. They're not sinful things in and of themselves. For example, like family, children, spouses, siblings, relatives, Friends, jobs, careers, education, holidays, of course, we have to consider food, decorations, gifts, memories. These things are not bad in and of themselves. And they do have a place in our lives, of course. But they do become bad. They do become, in fact, sinful when they become ultimate in our lives. When they become the top priority. 
when we begin to idolize these things to the point that they take the primary spot and God, in turn, takes the back seat. The familiar heart that knows the truth but lacks trust in the truth and joy in the truth is a dangerous place to be. A very dangerous place to be because the heart easily becomes hardened and self-righteous. That's why the book of Hebrews, it tells us in Hebrews chapter three, Verse 12, it says, take care, brethren, that there not be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart that falls away from the living God. Verse 13, but encourage one another day after day as long as it is still called today so that none of you will be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Familiarity combined with unbelief and joylessness is a dangerous combination. It is a dangerous blend because your heart will become hard and self-righteous to the point that you become the standard. But it's your external obedience that becomes the standard, not your heart commitment, not your heart devotion. And most importantly, God's not the standard. It's now your convictions. When joy and trust are absent in your pursuit of God and pursuit of truth. There's another group we need to discuss. The others who may find it difficult to celebrate the incarnation is the grieving. Views are those with sadness and sorrow in their hearts. And it can be for a variety of different reasons. It can be broad circumstances in terms of what's happening in a more universal scale, the world, such as politics, crime, riots, natural disasters, viruses, pandemics. We may know something about that this year. Sinful ideologies, moral decay, moral corruption. All of these can bring sorrow to a heart. Sadness, really depression to a heart. Then there's personal circumstances that can grieve us, such as a troubled marriage, a husband and a wife that seem to be growing farther and farther apart, children who aren't walking with the Lord, who aren't pursuing the truth, but rather following their sin. It can be money financial instability, careers, wanting a different job, discontent, dissatisfied with the very career you have. Maybe it's friendships, conflict with friendships that you have, or desiring more friendships, greater friendships. Maybe it's an illness. Maybe it's cancer, a very serious illness that is causing sorrow to your hearts. And then for others, maybe it's the passing of a loved one, the loss of a loved one that makes celebrating the incarnation really hard this year, challenging and difficult. Then there's a third one, and that's sinful 
circumstances. And what I'm referring to here isn't others sin towards you, but specifically your own sin. That sin that just doesn't seem to go away. No matter how hard you fight, no matter how hard you try, it just weighs you down. It just beats you up. It cripples you spiritually. It grieves you. It discourages, discourages you to the point that you're filled with hopelessness and despair. So to the point that you can relate with what Paul said in Romans 7, what I'm doing I don't understand, but that I will to do, I don't practice, but that what I hate, that's what I do. Oh, wretched man, who will set me free? And deliver me from this body of death. Then there's one more group. The last group. That's the joyful. Some of you are probably thinking, finally. Because <laughs> that's me, I'm doing great. I'm doing fantastic this morning. I'm filled with joy. I'm filled with happiness. And if that's true, fantastic. And I'm talking about true happiness. I'm not talking about Instagram happiness. Okay? I'm talking about true happiness. That you are truly joyful. And if that is true, you still, though, need to examine what is the source of that joy? Where's it coming from? Where's it springing from? What's the main cause? And we'll talk about that more just in a little bit. Now, some of you may be asking, Patrick, where are you going with this? You know, we're two days past Christmas. You've clearly missed the boat. You're clearly off cue. Where are you going? And I am so glad you asked. Because what I've just covered has all been introduction. It's all been set up because what I want to do is I want to show you how Christ, his incarnation, his coming, which is the true meaning of Christmas, is worth celebrating. This year, every year, every month, every day, regardless of where you're at, regardless of how you're feeling this morning, regardless of what's on your mind, regardless of what's on your heart, Christ is worth celebrating. He's worth celebrating for all of us, to the ignorant, to the hostile, to the indifferent, to the familiar, to the grieving, and to the joyful. And I want to walk through each of these to explain why Christ is worth following and worshiping. And I pray it would be a comfort to you this morning. Let's look at the first person, the first group, the ignorant. These are the ones who are misinformed. They lack understanding about the incarnation of Christ. They need to understand what this is about, so let's walk it through. Let's discuss it. First, we need to explain the word incarnation. What does the word incarnation mean? Well, it means the act of being made flesh. It comes from the Latin version of John Word 14, which reads, in our translation, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. This term, word, that is used a few times in John chapter 1, is used in reference to Jesus, who is declared for us in John 1 as to be the eternal God. The everlasting Lord, 
the creator of all things. John 1, 1, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him and for him, and by, and by apart from him, nothing was made that was made. The incarnation tells us that the eternal son of God took on flesh, became incarnate. First Timothy 3.16 tells us that he who was revealed in the flesh, or that he was manifested in the flesh. It's that the son willingly humbled himself, chose to assume a human nature in obedience to God the Father and for our salvation. The book of Philippians chapter two, verses six through eight describes this humble work of our Savior. Verse six, it says, although he existed in the form of God, he did not regard equality with God as a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant, being made in the likeness of men, being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even the death on a cross. The eternal son, always possessed the divine nature, did not give up his deity here when it says he emptied himself. He didn't exchange it. He didn't substitute it out. He didn't replace it. But rather, this was an addition, not a subtraction. He added to himself a second nature, a human nature, consisting of a human body and soul, though without a sin nature. This is the God-man, fully God, fully man. So when we're talking about the incarnation, what we're talking about is that the almighty God took on human flesh. And when we pause and when we think about that, do not miss that this is the most amazing event in all of history. That the eternal, self-existent, omnipotent, omnipresent, omniscient, holy son of God took on a human nature. And he lived among humanity, who's both God and man. And he did this to be our savior. To save us from our sin. First John 3, 5 says, you know that he was manifested to take away our sin. First Timothy 1, 15, he came in the world to save sinners. You need to understand that all of us are sinful not just in action, but in heart, in desire and motivation. Our hearts and minds are defiled by sin. Because of this, we have failed to fulfill the law of God. We have fallen short. We've missed the target. We've missed the mark. We know the verse well, Romans 3, 23, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And because of this, we are under the curse of the law which the curse is the penalty. This is the punishment. This is the condemnation of the law. But Christ came in the flesh under the law to fulfill the law. He said he came not to destroy but to fulfill. He said he came to fulfill all righteousness in Matthew 3.15. And he came to redeem us. That word redemption is an economic term. It's the idea of purchasing something by a ransom price. Christ purchased us out of our bondage to sin and the consequence and penalty of sin by his precious 
blood. Galatians 3, 13 summarizes the best that Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us. We were set free because Christ became the curse for us. Now, he did not become sinful, but he became the sinner's substitute. And he suffered to die in our place what we deserve. In our place, our punishment for us. Christ became incarnate for the purpose of dying. In other words, he was born to die. That's why he came. And this was necessary for us to be saved because as it tells us in Hebrews 9.22, it says that without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sin. There is no remission. Blood has to be shed for sin to be atoned for. You see, we have sinned against a holy God. An eternal God. A just God. And because of this, our sin requires an infinite payment. This is why hell is eternal. Because the justice of God demands a full payment for our sin. And full payment for humans who are finite is impossible to render to a holy, infinite God. So if we're to pay for our sin, we pay forever. It's eternal. That's what Jesus tells us several times throughout the Gospels, specifically synoptic Gospels. Matthew, he mentions it, the everlasting fire. It's an everlasting punishment. You can't escape this word. You can try to dance around it. You can try to play uh, hopscotch hermeneutics, but regardless of what you get, it is eternal punishment. It's an everlasting conscious punishment. It is eternal. And because it's eternal, there could never come a time when you say, it is finished. You could never come a time when you say, it's been paid for. It is satisfied. I have served my time. My time is up. Now I can go free. We could never make the declaration, it is finished on our own. But what we can't say, Jesus can. He has the authority, the power, and the sufficiency to declare it is finished. He is the one who indeed can set us free because his sacrifice is complete. It is accomplished because Jesus is our mediator. Sent by God the Father, for there's one God and one mediator between God and man, the man, Christ Jesus. We needed a substitute, one who could represent man and die in the place of man. But we also needed one whose payment for sin would be of infinite value. Only God could do that. Only God could pay for our sin to satisfy the infinite demands of God's justice against our sin. A mere man couldn't do this because a mere man would be guilty just like all of us and under the judgment of God. This is why Jesus had to be fully God, fully man, to die as our substitute and ask to God to offer a sacrifice of infinite value. 
which indeed it was. And the resurrection was, in fact, that was the stamp. That was the very approval of God the Father showing this sacrifice, it was complete. It is sufficient to justify you and me. And when we think about that, how great the incarnation is. How great this work, this salvific work is that God took on human flesh and he did this for the purpose of being our sacrifice. Truly, how glorious. What grace. What love this is. The ignorant need to know this. The misunderstood so they can turn to Christ and embrace him as king and savior of their lives. Next is the hostile. Remember, these are the ones who are anti-God, anti-truth, who love their sin, who love their rebellion, who love their wickedness, and we shouldn't be surprised by this. This is what Jesus says. John 3, 19, for men love darkness rather than light. This is their very nature, to love sin, to hate God, to love darkness, to hate light. But those who love their darkness need to understand that their desires and actions of darkness do not escape the watchful eyes of God. For Proverbs 15, 3 says, the eyes of the Lord are in every place, keeping watch on the good and the evil. Proverbs 5.21, the ways of man are before the eyes of the Lord. God sees it all. And this God who sees it all because he is holy and he is just and he is righteous is opposed to them if they remain in their sin. If they refuse to give it up. If they refuse to repent from their sin, God will punish them for all eternity and justly so because his punishment, his judgment is according to truth, Romans 2 tells us. But the hostile need to understand that the very fact that they are alive and breathing right now is God's kindness to them. That God has not given them judgment He is giving them kindness at that very moment. And the kindness of God should lead them to repentance. They need to understand that, behold, today is the day of salvation. And there's still time to turn to the Savior. And to ask for mercy to be saved so their sin can be forgiven. Their rebel heart changed. Transformed. Because we must remember, Christ died for the rebel. Romans 5, 6, he died for the ungodly. Romans 5, 8, he died for the sinner. Romans 5, 10, he died for his enemies. That was us. Before Christ, we were the ungodly. We were the sinner. We were his enemies. Alienated from God separated enemies in our works in our heart and in our mind but God gave you grace wasn't something you did he did it he saved you you couldn't accomplish it you couldn't achieve it you couldn't earn it on your own for your deeds your righteousness according to Isaiah 64 6 is like filthy rags in the sight of God. 
That's what's so sad. Most people in hell will be self-righteous people because they thought their righteousness would be sufficient. Their own credentials could get them there. But in reality, it only damns them even farther. The hostile need to turn to the kind and gracious Savior as today is the day of salvation. Next is the indifferent. This is those who have the truth, they affirm it, but they don't take the truth seriously. They live as if the truth doesn't matter. God doesn't matter. Their soul doesn't matter. They're like really the man in the parable of the rich fool. That it reads in verse 16, Jesus gives us this parable and he says, he told them a parable saying the land of a rich man was very productive. And he began reasoning to himself saying, what shall I do since I have no place to store my crops? Then he said, this is what I will do. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones. And there I will store all my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul, soul, you have many goods laid up for many years to come. Take your ease, eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, you fool, this very night your soul is required of you. And now who will own what you have prepared. This rich man, this rich fool, took inventory. But his inventory that he took was of the here and now, was merely of the present. And he failed to take inventory of the most important thing, his soul, his eternal destiny. That which he was indifferent to, God, truth, would now stand over him in judgment. His soul was lost because of indifference, distraction, a failure to prioritize what truly matters. Christ, his God. That's why the indifferent must understand, don't fail to apply the words of Christ when he says in Luke 13, unless you repent, you all likewise will perish. Heed the words of Christ. Respond wisely. Next, we need to look at the familiar. Remember, these are the ones who, they know the truth, they've embraced it, but the joy and the centrality of the gospel is not primary in their hearts. If that is you this morning, because we can all fall into this, especially being in a sound church, hearing the gospel, hearing Christmas messages. Pastor Lance has been faithful to preach hundreds of Christmas messages. It is easy to get familiar to the point that you become cold. And if that is you, you need to repent. You need to repent of the idols of your heart. And you need to come back to your first love. Remember the church of Ephesus? Revelation chapter two, who Christ first commended them for their perseverance, their endurance, their commitment to the truth, that they haven't grown weary. They test all things by the word of truth, but they were missing the most important thing. They left their first love, which was Christ. So for us, we need to have that reminder. And if that is you this morning, if you are the familiar person, 
but lacks the awe, the reverence, the joy of Christ, come back to your first love. Come back to Christ. That he would be the main priority. Ask the Lord to restore the joy of your salvation. Psalm 51 verse 12. Remember David's prayer, restore to me the joy of my salvation. That you in turn may celebrate the coming of Christ, not just in your mouth and minds, but in your hearts that you would adore him and that you would cherish him, that you would say what the psalmist in Psalm 63, verse three, behold, your loving kindness is better than life. Next group is the grieving. These are those filled with sadness and sorrow in their hearts. First thing you need to remember is the sovereignty of God that no matter what happens, has happened, or will happen, our God is still in control. And Psalm 115.3 tells us, our God is in the heavens, he does whatever he pleases. That his will is always accomplished. And that he is reigning on the throne and nothing, nothing can conquer or usurp his kingship. He is reigning right now. And the one who is reigning, he is the one who's causing all things to work together for our good, even though it may not feel that way right now. This one who is sovereign, please remember that he is kind. He is patient. He is merciful. And he's the God of all comfort. You're not alone. He is with you to sustain you. He cares for you. Remember 1 Peter 5, 7. Casting all your cares upon him for he cares for you. He is sustaining you. His grace is sufficient. Remember, that's what he told Paul. Paul is the thorn in the flesh, 2 Corinthians 12. Lord, take it away, it hurts. Praise this three times. Take it away, I want it gone. Our Lord's response, my grace is sufficient for you. It's made perfect in your weakness. Remember, he loves you. Not because you've earned it. Not because you're worthy. He loves you because he loves you. He doesn't love you because now you're working to please him. Your work for him now, even as a Christian, is not the source and the cause of his love for you. He loves you because he loves you. He's chosen to love you. For that is his sovereign and kind will. He gave his son for you. Romans 8.32 He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not with him also freely give us all things? Remember his nailed, pierced hands. Remember that he suffered and died for you. And nothing can separate you from that love. Neither principalities nor powers, neither death, nothing can separate you 
from the love of Christ, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Nothing. For he is kind. Find comfort in the compassion of Christ and in the security of Christ. Now let's say you're grieved and discouraged by your sin. There's hope for you as well. Because the grace that saves us it all is also the grace that transforms us. Titus 2.11 tells us, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men, instructing us to deny ungodliness and worldly desires to live sensibly, righteously, and godly in this present age, looking for the blessed hope and glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from every lawless deed and to purify for himself a people for his own possession, zealous for good works." need to remember, if you're a genuine Christian, you are a new creation in Christ. And you are being sanctified more and more into the precious image of Christ. What Christ has started in you, he will finish. Philippians 1.6, being confident in this very thing that he who has begun a good work in you will complete it until the day of Jesus Christ. Yes, sin is an ongoing enemy. It seems like no matter where we go, it's there again. Those corrupt desires motivations, those evil, wicked thoughts that pop up into our hearts and minds will be with us. It's that ongoing fight until we enter into glory. But don't believe the lie of your sin, that God is no longer kind, that God is no longer good, that your sin is more of a benefit to you than his kindness and grace. God has not left you alone. He's not left you defenseless in your fight of sin. He gave you the word. His spirit commands us to pray. Tells us in 2 Peter 1.3 that his divine power has given us all things that pertain to life and godliness. You have everything you need. Though your sin may seem to be winning and just weighing you down. There is a savior who is greater than your sin. And not only saves you from the penalty and condemnation of your sin, but saves you from the power of sin. So Romans 6, it tells us that we who were once slaves of sin are now a slave of righteousness. But yes, we have a responsibility to fight our sin, to pursue Christ. We are to be active. Yes, we are to be engaged. It's not let go and let God. But no, but nor it's not the other side of activism, of I do it, I do it, because you try to do it on your own, you will fall. Your flesh is weak, Jesus said. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. So be watchful, be prayerful, be vigilant. Don't lose heart. Don't grow weary. You know, the longer I'm a Christian, I see how easy it is to grow weary how easy it is to get distracted and life just weighs you down. I'm only 32. (laughs) But how easy it is just to lose heart and to lose conviction. Keep your eyes on the prize. Keep your focus and your heart on Christ. Keep fighting your sin and pursuing Christ and trusting him because he who calls you is faithful. Now let's look at the last group, the joyful. Again, if that's you this morning, 
We praise God for that. And I'm not saying that sarcastically. I really mean that. There are joyful people. We praise God for that. That is the working of the Spirit if it is indeed true joy. But as I said earlier, you still must examine the source of your joy and ask, is it Christ? Or is it you're celebrating because it's the season? It's the holidays. It's the gifts. It's the food. It's your family time. It's the memories. It's the time off. Is your joy tied to your circumstance, your conditions? Is that the source rather than Christ? Now, of course, please understand me, it's not wrong to be excited and joyful about the holidays, about food and gifts and the people were around. I'm not advocating you to be Ebenezer Scrooge or the Grinch, which I have been accused of being. The first year I was here, I raised the question, do we think we're being excessive with the trees? And do you think we're putting them up a little bit too early? I have since repented, okay? I've come to the other side. I see the joy and abundance with it. Of, of course, there's nothing wrong with celebrating these things. But your true joy should be Christ. And as if Christ is your true joy, as you take pleasure in these other things, you see them as evidences, as manifestation of God's grace and kindness in your life. That these are gifts given to you by God. So ultimately you're worshiping him as you celebrate. So what's the source of your joy? Is it Christ or is it something else? Now, I have one final note on the joyful side of things that's important that we need to remember. That let's say your joy decreases in Christ in the weeks ahead. Let's say it's not as strong as it previously was. It's very easy for our response to be one of panic, one of unease. And the way we seek to solve this is by looking within rather than to him. You must remember, and please hear me on this, it's not your joy in Christ that saves you. It's Christ that saves you. It's not your feelings about Christ that saves you. It's Christ that saves you. It's not your emotions about Christ that saves you. It's Christ that saves you. It's not your hope in Christ that saves you. Christ saves you. It's not your faith in Christ, though that is the instrument. It is Christ that saves you. Keep looking unto Christ. His blood, his merits that save you, it's not you. This is why God became incarnate. To save us. Isn't that worth celebrating? Not just around Christmas time. Not just around the holiday season. But every day. Every hour every minute. So this morning, which one are you? Are you the ignorant? Well, not anymore. The indifferent? The hostile? 
the familiar, the grieving, or the joyful. Christ is the sufficient Savior for all of you. And you are complete in him. My prayer is that you would see Christ as worthy of worship and of celebration and that your heart would be indeed drawn to him. Amen? Let's pray. Lord, you are the kind Savior, the one who's worthy of our praise. You are worthy of worship for you are our creator. You are worthy of worship because you are our Savior. Lord, comfort our hearts with your truth. Lord, for you are the truth. You are the way, you are the life. And I pray our hearts would be so filled, consumed, and saturated by you. Work on our hearts, especially as a new year is coming. Lord, help our heart and our mind to be set on the things above. Lord, help us to remember where our true identity lies. It's with Christ who is our life. And when Christ appears, we will be like him. But until that time comes, Lord, may we be faithful in putting to death our sin and living holy, righteous, godly lives that the peace of Christ would rule our hearts, that your word would richly dwell within us. Oh, Lord, do a mighty work. And I pray these people in this room, part of this congregation, Lord, help them to have hearts that are surrendered to you and comforted by the graciousness of the Savior. It's in your name we pray, amen.